If you're tired of these promos, supporters get the podcast early and ad-free. Just go to donate.bogosity.tv for the links to sign up. Welcome to the Bogosity Podcast for the week of December 4, 2022. The podcast that pays off the national debt with a credit card. This is your host, Shane Killian. Let's re-unsubsidize the news of the bogus. So, for those of you who aren't paying attention, the 2022 midterm election has ended up being one big fiasco. Perhaps nowhere more so than Maricopa County, Arizona. In the most populous county in Arizona, with a population of 4.4 million, including the 1.6 million residents of Phoenix, voters face long lines, disenfranchisement, and even uncertainty that their votes were counted on Election Day. Of particular note is the Arizona gubernatorial race between Secretary of State Katie Hobbs and challenger Carrie Lake, where Hobbs is listed as the official winner with just 17,000 votes separating them. There's also the Senate race in an election that left the Senate split 50-50, where Mark Kelly edged out Blake Masters by just 125,000 votes. So, yeah, Maricopa County matters. Most of Hobbs' votes were from early voting, where few issues with machines were reported. But on Election Day, which was overwhelmingly Republican in turnout, it was a different story entirely. According to the testimony of several poll workers from all over the county, the night before, they had checked all the machines and confirmed they were all in working order. They get in at 5.30 the next day to prepare for the voters, and all of a sudden, over two-thirds of machines have problems, from improperly printing ballots to failures to feed the paper. And the canvassing provoked a lot of complaints, since it was Hobbs, the Secretary of State who ran the election, who refused to recuse herself or make sure independent nonpartisan people were appointed. Here's a few examples of the testimony before the Maricopa County Board of Supervisors. On November 7th, we had a few issues with the printers, but uh, by the end of the day, we had everything functioning properly. On the 8th, we arrived for our shift at 5.30 a.m. When we started our equipment check, none of the site books would connect to the server. We couldn't even access the time clock to punch in. Our troubleshooter was not on site and could not immediately be reached, so we called the county hotline. The hotline was unable to resolve our issues, so we asked for a T-Tech to be dispatched to our location. Meanwhile, voters began to show up, and we started explaining to them what was going on. By 6 a.m., we had a small crowd, 10 to 15 voters, and we had to tell them we had no way of checking them in. They could either wait for the problem to be resolved or go to another polling location to vote. Most of them left. Eventually, our troubleshooter showed up but could not fix the problem, and he suggested that we continue to wait for the T-Tech. While we were waiting, more voters showed up and had to be given their options. At least 50 people were turned away in this process. The T-Tech eventually showed up and got the site books to communicate with the main server, so we were able to clock in for our shift, but there was still a communication issue with the printers. When we finally ran test prints and it looked like the issue was fixed, we announced that the polls were open and I checked in the first voter. It was now about 7 a.m. The first voter was checked in, but the printer immediately failed to print her ballot. 
I was a poll worker um, on November 8th from 6 a.m. The tabulator machines at my location were not accepting the ballots. We had long lines inside the building and they were not moving. Um, I also received a text at the same time from my friend who voted in Cave Creek and it was the same problem up there. Our troubleshooter was responsible for four locations. The tabulators were not working. And this is a very important election. These should have all been screened ahead of time. They should have been proof that they were working correctly. I feel that the voters of Arizona, and in particular Maricopa County and Wickenburg, had their votes disenfranchised because Maricopa County had so many problems on election day. Thousands could not vote. Thousands left discouraged. I was one of those voters disenfranchised in Wickenburg and Maricopa County. I tried to vote in person, and I was told by the poll workers that they had problems with the printers at first and then the tabulators all day long. I watched dozens of voters having the same problems. We were given an option, put it in drawer three, labeled misreads, and assured it would be counted, or we could spoil it or try again, go to a different town to vote. They said 60 plus tabulators in Maricopa County were not working correctly. I reluctantly finally put my ballot in drawer three and noticed there were hundreds of ballots stuffed in both tabulators in drawer three. I was later told there were 17,000 plus ballots in drawer three. I was a poll worker a number of times under different Secretary of States and recorders. We never had problems, not like this. How can elections be fair when tens of thousands of people are not able to vote? This is an honor that I can speak because I come from a communist country and I don't want this to become communist country. My family in Venezuela lost everything. First of all, I would like to ask you, Board of Supervisors, please help me understand how can Kathy Hobbs, current Secretary of State, be allowed to run for the election when she never accused herself? Anybody? How is she allowed to run for a governor when she never accused herself as a Secretary of State? Can somebody answer this, please? I, I'm questioning why is nobody talking about us over the media? What we saw on Election Day was outrageous. And to say that it was anything but that is uh, either you think we're stupid or you're just that arrogant. Uh, what we've seen from you in the election office and your response, very simple questions needed to be asked. 2020 was a disaster. How was 2022 worse? You cannot say that you can certify an election when half of the voting machines were down. Was it 1,000 people that were disenfranchised? Was it 10,000 of the people that were there in line or the people that didn't show up because they saw on the news the election machines didn't work. The fact that you've already made up your minds, you've already made the decision, this is, this is all semantics. All of us coming up here and speaking is semantics. You've already made your vote. The answer that I hear from everyone across this room is you cannot certify. So the question is, what is the remedy? The fact that you were on a pack that was going against Carrie Lake, how can you say that there's no conflict of interest? You have a secretary of state running against a gubernatorial candidate. How can you say there's no conflict of interest? And then your machines go down on election day. It is absolutely outrageous. If you certify today, the only thing you'll be certifying is your corruption. It's also disturbing that over in Mojave County, Supervisor Ron Gold was told he'd be arrested if he didn't vote to certify the results. Um, I vote aye under duress. I found out today that I have no choice but to vote aye or I'll be arrested and charged with a felony. I don't think that that is what our founders had in mind when they used the democratic process to elect our leaders, our self, form of self-government. I find that very disheartening. 
then what was the point of having a vote to begin with? And despite the fact that the news media keeps saying that this is just a tiny fringe of conspiracy theorist election deniers, Rasmussen reports found that 71% of likely voters believed it's likely that the problems in Maricopa County affected the outcome. That includes 65% of registered Democrats and 55% of those who identify as liberal. When asked if the right to vote was deprived of many voters on November 8, 72% agreed, including 69% of Democrats and 59% of liberals. So this is not a partisan or ideological issue. 6% more women than men, along with 68% of whites, 73% of blacks, and 80% of other minorities think the problems in Maricopa County likely affected the outcome. It really makes you wonder just what has to happen in order for us to get a little bit of transparency and accountability here. If you're looking for a way to support this channel, but you don't have any spare cash and you can't stand ads, you can do so by generating your own cryptocurrency. Use the links at the bottom of the description to follow the link to odyssey.com to listen to the podcast and see all of my YouTube videos as well. Just watching videos will produce cryptocurrency for the creator and yourself. And since Odyssey is always monetized and never censored, you'll have no problem seeing all the videos from your favorite creators. You can also use the library credits you create at Odyssey to tip creators and even purchase paid content. Earn library credits through various rewards, including daily view rewards and the number of shares and invites. And you can interact with creators in all sorts of ways, including like and dislike, comment, boost a post by supporting it, repost it, and share to other sites, all while earning crypto for the creator. Easily monetize yourself and your favorite creators using cryptocurrency without advertising. Use the link below to visit this channel on odyssey.com and see many of your other favorites there as well. We see a similar story with the Jan 6 panel, where 15 current and former staffers are complaining that the committee, and especially Liz Cheney, is preventing important information from being revealed to the public. Keep in mind that this is an illegally constituted committee to begin with. Pelosi violated the terms of H.R. 503 when she refused to let the House Minority Leader select five committee members and instead handpicked the only two Republicans on the committee, one being Cheney. They're accusing Cheney of turning the committee's mission from one of fact-finding to one where she attacks Trump and uses it as a launching-off point for her presidential campaign. Gone from the final report is the revelations from the blue team, which looked into the failure of law enforcement and the IC to prepare for the threat, even after Trump himself warned about it and offered to provide National Guard forces, the green team, which examined the financing, and the purple team, which looked at militia groups. Gee, I wonder why they didn't want all that to become public. One staffer said, quote, We all came from prestigious jobs dropping what we were doing because we were told this would be an important fact-finding investigation that would inform the public. But when the committee became a Cheney 2024 campaign, many of us became discouraged. Jeremy Adler bleated in response, quote, Donald Trump is the first president in American history to attempt to overturn an election and prevent the peaceful transfer of power. 
So damn right, Liz is prioritizing understanding what he did and how he did it and ensuring it never happens again. Gee, thanks for letting us know it was nothing political. Committee spokesman Tim Mulvey referred to the staffers as, quote, a handful of disgruntled staff who are uninformed about many parts of the committee's ongoing work. They've forgotten their duties as public servants, and their cowardice is helping Donald Trump and others responsible for the violence of January 6th. All nine committee members, there are supposed to be 13, remember, continue to review materials and make contributions to the draft report, which will address every key aspect of the committee's investigation. Decisions about the contents of the report ultimately rest with the committee's bipartisan membership, not the staff. Again, calling the committee bipartisan is a laugh. Cheney was defeated in the primary and won't be in the House next year. The other Republican member, Adam Kinsinger, didn't seek re-election. The staffers said that the mission of the committee, according to the resolution, is to discover what political forces and security failures led to the Capitol being overrun. They're afraid that leaving out relevant information would ignore important lessons for the future that go way beyond Donald Trump. According to one staffer, everybody freaked out when they found that only the gold team, the anti-Trump team, would have their work included in the final product. Some of the disaffected staff have left in frustration in the past few months. Some of them began lobbying other panel members to include the full set of findings in the final report. With the House Republican majority just a month away, Jim Jordan of Ohio is already preparing an examination of any evidence omitted from the final report that contradicts their claims about Trump's action leading up to the Capitol occupation. In the meantime, with Elon Musk reinstating Donald Trump's Twitter account, which restored all of his tweets that had been unavailable to the public from then to now, we see that, if anything, he was saying the opposite. On the 6th, he tweeted, Please support our Capitol Police and law enforcement. They are truly on the side of our country. Stay peaceful. And... I am asking for everyone at the U.S. Capitol to remain peaceful. No violence. Remember, we are the party of law and order. Respect the law and our great men and women in blue. Thank you. And on the 7th, he posted a video expressing outrage at the attack, something the committee claims he never did. I would like to begin by addressing the heinous attack on the United States Capitol. Like all Americans, I am outraged by the violence, lawlessness, and mayhem. I immediately deployed the National Guard and federal law enforcement to secure the building and expel the intruders. America is and must always be a nation of law and order. The demonstrators who infiltrated the Capitol have defiled the seat of American democracy. To those who engage in the acts of violence and destruction, you do not represent our country. And to those who broke the law, you will pay. An illegally constituted committee deliberately using misinformation, and they still have to cherry-pick the final report? That's not going to look good for any of them. If you're on the Wi-Fi in a coffee shop or hotel, anyone on that network can get your traffic. Do you really trust all of those strangers? For that matter, do you really trust your ISP? 
A VPN can protect you from prying eyes, disguise your location, and even foil government censors. It's essential in this day and age. So go to vpn.pagosity.tv and you'll be taken to BoxPN. Starting at just $2.99 a month, you can get unlimited high-speed connections to VPN servers all over the world. And they don't log connections, so your privacy is assured. Traveling abroad, just VPN home, and don't worry about what those other governments are doing. Back at home, stop your ISP from traffic shaping and messing with the quality internet access you're paying good money for. You can connect from multiple machines at once, including your smartphone or tablet, and it supports all the secure standards, including OpenVPN and SSTP. Bypass sensors and surveillance with your own secure VPN connection. Go to vpn.pagosity.tv. in yet another major fail for the federal government, both the U.S. Army and the CDC have been pushing apps that contain Russian malware. The software routines send visitor data to a Russian company called Pushwoosh, which claims to be a U.S. company, but in 2013, one of the developers admitted to writing the Pincer Trojan, which intercepts and forwards text messages from Android devices. According to an investigation by Reuters, Pushwoosh is actually headquartered in Siberia and is registered with the Russian government. When Reuters talked to its founder, Max Konev, he said, quote, I am proud to be Russian, and I would never hide this. But in a blog post posted after the Reuters article was posted, the company wrote, Pushwoosh Incorporated is a privately held C-Corp company incorporated under state laws of Delaware, USA. Pushwish Incorporated was never owned by any company registered in the Russian Federation. Reuters asked Pushwish for evidence of its claims, but they never responded. Konev said the company, quote, has no connection with the Russian government of any kind. But, of course, Russia has in the past ordered local companies to hand over user data. Konev said that the company stores its data in the U.S. and Germany, but cybersecurity experts say this won't prevent Russian intelligence agencies from forcing them to turn it over. It's not just the feds, though. Pushwish code has been embedded into almost 8,000 apps in the Google and Apple app stores. According to Confine founder Jerome Dangu, quote, Pushwish collects user data, including precise geolocation, on sensitive and governmental apps, which could allow for invasive tracking at scale. Google and Apple both declined to respond to Reuters. Congress is making amendments to the Intelligence Authorization Act to deal with such threats. Security researcher Zach Edwards said, quote, I'm hoping that Congress acts on that. If they were to put a requirement that there's an annual audit of risks from foreign aid tech, that would at least force people to identify and document those connections. And he says there are a lot more of them other than Pushwoosh. Is it just me or is it long past time we made all our devices open source? Do you have children or nieces or nephews? Are you homeschooling or just want to counter some of the socialist indoctrination most children get in school? If so, go to bogosity.tv slash Tuttletwins and you'll be taken to a website where you can get some great books for elementary age children. The Tuttle Twins books are books about liberty and free market economics that include children's versions of Bastiat's The Law, Leonard Reed's I Pencil, and Hayek's The Road to Serfdom, as well as books about the Federal Reserve and how regulations protect business cronies. They'll learn about the harm caused by eminent domain or regulations passed in the name of safety and fundamental concepts of liberty. 
and as you can see from the sample pages on the website, they're all easy to read and nicely illustrated. They're just $9.99 a piece, or get a special discount as well as free bonuses when you purchase all five. You can even buy in bulk to donate to schools and local libraries. So get the Tuttle Twins books at bogosity.tv slash Tuttle Twins. And now it's time to extra geniculate this week's biggest bogani emitter. And this week it goes to SEC Chair Gary Gensler with brickbats to the fawning news media outlets like Bloomberg who are making out like he's just the bee's knees. Of the FTX collapse, Bloomberg wrote, Sam Bankman-Fried fooled a lot of people, but not the SEC chairman, whose warnings about risk and lack of regulation were well-founded. Are you kidding me? Not only did the SEC do absolutely nothing to stop this fraud, they gave unprecedented access to founder CEO Sam Bankman-Fried at the highest levels, including Gensler's own office. Listen to this pile of crapioka, quote, In fact, there's perhaps only one person who looks good amid this fiasco, Gary Gensler, the top securities regulator in the U.S., and arguably one of the only senior Biden administration officials who was trying to stop the excesses of the industry that Bankman-Fried and his enablers promoted. No, he wasn't. He was too busy harassing and destroying library, that gift to the world, and as we covered, he decimated the Howey test and our rights to run a business in the process. They go on and on about how wonderful it was that Gensler has been trying to regulate cryptocurrencies. But Gensler was trying to regulate the decentralized cryptos like Ripple and LBC. And FTX was centralized, an exchange and derivatives company that dealt in custodial wallets where they had complete control over the funds of depositors, completely unlike library. Gensler was all buddy-buddy with Bankman-Fried, and the regulation he was trying to pass was lobbied for by Bankman-Fried. If those regs had gone through, Bankman-Fried would have been enriched even further, and the Ponzi scheme all the bigger when it blew up. Quote, As bad as the FTX collapse has been for crypto speculators, the rest of the financial system has remained more or less untouched. That was an achievement. This is an outright lie. Gensler did nothing about FTX while he harassed Library, lied about the law, destroyed Howie, and made it so no one knows how to run a business they won't try and destroy. Bankman Fried made out like a bandit in the meantime. Bloomberg fearmongers that Binance and others have set up shop elsewhere where they won't be subject to the SEC's jurisdiction. But what has the SEC done other than make it impossible, or at least incredibly unadvisable, to set up shop in the U.S.? Bloomberg really got triggered when Coinbase CEO Brian Armstrong pointed out that the SEC was going after legitimate outfits like them, but leaving FTX alone. Quote, you might think that Armstrong would be sending a thank you note to Gensler for keeping him and his customers out of an incredibly risky business. Instead, Armstrong is leading a brigade that's seeking, against all logic, to pin the blame for FTX on Gensler. The reasoning, which Armstrong laid out in a tweet storm and a handful of media appearances, is that Gensler created a lack of regulatory clarity by saying that many crypto tokens were, in effect, illegal unregistered securities, all of which is nuts. 
If anything, what happened with FTX vindicates the position of Gensler and other crypto skeptics. So, a Washington, D.C. insider money laundering to both Democrats and Republicans through FTX, through Ukraine, and all sorts of places means other people in the crypto space are bad? The fact that he was harassing Coinbase, who did nothing wrong and completely ignored FTX, means everyone should be grateful? The complaints about regulatory clarity, which has been the industry's standard response whenever it faces resistance, are self-serving. A desperate deflection. Today, when crypto boosters talk about clarity, what they're asking for is the U.S. government to approve an extremely risky type of speculation. No, what we're asking for is the right to do with our money as we please. I mean, how is any of this even possible with Library or Bitcoin or any of the others where the wallets are completely non-custodial? And they know this. This is all about an excuse to regulate something that shouldn't be regulated that probably isn't even possible to regulate because it's a threat to them and they know it. As Library.com tweeted, The biggest difference between Sam Bankman-Fried and Gary Gensler is that one of them was a smarmy, lying sociopath and the other one ran an exchange called FTX. So all of that makes Gary Gensler this week's biggest bogan emitter. I want to tell you about the eyeglasses I've been wearing for years. As people can see on my videos, I have a very strong prescription, which makes glasses more expensive, especially when I need computer glasses, reading glasses, prescription sunglasses, and most expensively, progressive lenses for general everyday wear. To save money while still getting quality glasses, I get them from Fermu. In fact, I just got a pair of progressives with high-index aspherical lenses and a nice pair of frames my wife loves for just over $100. It would have been $500 to get them through my eye doctor. Not only do they look good, the glasses are durable. I've worn many pairs for several years without problems. All orders come with a 30-day return policy, a 3-month warranty, and one-on-one customer service. Go to Firmoo, that's F-I-R-M-O-O dot Bogosity dot TV, anytime you need quality glasses at a low price. Once again, that's Firmoo dot Bogosity dot TV. So now we have another Silver Clue on Award winner, and oddly, it's one who sort of went against the previous winner. After The Onion filed their amicus brief of the Supreme Court in Novak v. City of Parma, Ohio, showing how parody should be protected legal speech, the Babylon Bee filed one arguing that parody is dangerous and shouldn't be allowed. The Bee said in a statement, While the knockoff the Babylon Bee cite The Onion filed a petition in support of Mr. Novak, we reject Mr. Novak's claim that parody is protected free speech as parody is dangerous to those with cultural and political power and it can hurt people's feelings. In their brief, they wrote, The Bee has inspired many imitators such as the Borowitz Report, Mad Magazine, and a rival news organization that unfortunately filed in support of the petitioner in this case, The Onion, often described as a less popular secular knockoff of the Babylon Bee. Since its inception six years ago, the Babylon Bee has been cited in congressional hearings, tweeted out by the once and future President of the United States, Donald Trump, and shared by millions of confused grandmothers on Facebook. The Bee receives tens of millions of visits every month, 
boasts millions of followers on popular social media sites like Facebook and Twitter, and also Truth Social, and has published over 10,000 articles containing a total of no fewer than two jokes. They also mentioned they were banned from Twitter for naming Rachel Levine Man of the Year. They also mentioned how seriously they've been taken, quote, Snopes has fact-checked dozens of its articles and incorrectly and libelously labeled them false, and thousands of liberals have left mean comments on its Facebook page. Thus, the Babylon Bee knows what it's like to have people be mean to you. It files this brief in support of the respondents in this case, as it is in the editorial staff direct interest to make sure that people cannot make satirical or sarcastic critiques of, publish parody pages about, or post mean Facebook comments concerning the Babylon Bee, because it really hurts their feelings. They argue for a proper historical reading of the First Amendment, quote, the petitioner seeks to turn that provision into a living amendment stretched beyond its original meaning to include humor and laughter. This is dangerous, as it is clear from a close reading of the Constitution that laughter is never explicitly mentioned, and that is a slippery slope we do not want to slide down. Who knows what other kinds of speech might eventually be protected by the Bill of Rights? Speech from people we disagree with? The Founding Fathers never intended for the First Amendment to protect jokes because jokes had not been invented yet. Historians mostly agree that the first joke was told by Bob Joke of Toledo, Ohio in 1927, well over a decade after the Constitution was written. It was, A copper walks into a speakeasy and the bartender says, Get your own giggle water, kiddo. Its meaning has been lost to the ages. They also point out the very relevant fact that the Internet didn't exist at the time of the Founders. Al Gore wasn't even born until 1948. Quote, In short, the First Amendment cannot cover Mr. Novak's disparaging parody of the fine, upstanding police officers in this case because he did not write it with quill and ink by the light of a lamp fueled by whale oil. Much as how the Second Amendment was only intended to protect the citizenry's right to bear muzzle-loading muskets and not fully semi-automatic 30-magazine-clip assault pistol-grip firearms, so the First Amendment cannot be applied to parody Facebook pages. They also argue that, quote, Parody is bad because it can make people doubt trusted institutions such as the government. And, quote, we can never truly enjoy our freedoms as Americans if we know that someone somewhere might be making fun of us. They concluded, In short, parody must be eliminated and humorists should be rounded up into camps and shot. It's worth it if it saves just one person from getting laughed at. For support, they cited such luminaries as Adolf Hitler, Benito Mussolini, Joseph Stalin, Mao Zedong, and Brian Stetler. Now, sorry to break this to you, but this was not the actual brief they filed. They gave the link to the actual brief in the footnote at the end, just to see how many people read that far. They did reference this brief, but had many zingers in the real one as well, including, quote, With 20 million page views per month on its website, the Bee is quite possibly the most popular source for satire in the history of the world. The Bee has inspired many imitators, including our fellow Amicus Curiae in this case, a cute little upstart known as The Onion. But amidst their barbs, they were in full support. Quote, the Onion may be staffed by socialist wackos, but in their brief defending parody to this court, they hit it out of the park. Parody has a unique capacity to speak truth to power and to cut its subjects down to size. 
Its continued protection under the First Amendment is crucial to preserving the right of citizens to effectively criticize the government. Furthermore, parody shouldn't be stripped of constitutional protection just because it's not clearly labeled as parody. And requiring that parody be written so as to ensure that the most gullible in our society, the Facebook-using grandmother, the tween TikTok addict, the CNN reporter, don't take it seriously, ruins the parody for everyone else. And just as the previous brief made the point the opposite way, this one made the point by demonstration. By writing this brief seriously, it, in a way, kind of ruined the other one, although it was still amazing parody. So enjoy your shiny new silver clue on, guys, and don't worry, there's absolutely nothing funny about it. And now let's prologize this week's Idiot Extraordinaire. And this week it goes to Yale University, who really just found the most efficient way of ensuring that their students are at the height of their mental capacity. Force out the one with problems. According to a lawsuit filed against the Ivy League University, a junior with a 3.8 GPA was told she was, quote, a liability to the university because she told her therapist she sometimes cut her arms to cope with stress. Everything surrounding that showed how the bureaucracy made it so that, instead of improving university life, they just got rid of the problem students. They encouraged the student to voluntarily withdraw, threatening that an involuntary withdrawal would not look good when applying for readmission. In one case, they wouldn't even allow a student to live off campus on the advice of her psychiatrist. In another case, a student who was admitted to Yale New Haven Hospital was released by her doctors who said they saw no reason why she shouldn't be able to return to class and graduate with her friends. After she was discharged, she found out that she had been involuntarily withdrawn by Yale five days earlier. Her mother had to collect her belongings and she wasn't even allowed to say goodbye to her friends. She also lost her student visa and had to return to Brazil. There are other stories as well, some of which are even more heartbreaking. To make matters worse, the semester when they withdraw is counted against the semesters required for their degree. The lawsuit says that the reinstatement process is a maze of confusing policies, sometimes consisting of conflicting information with consequences for getting it wrong. Quote, Yale's written policy and the widespread belief among students that seeking mental health treatment risks being pressured into voluntary withdrawal or being involuntarily withdrawn deters students from seeking the mental health treatment they need and from requesting accommodations for their disability. Yale has been increasing its administrative staff so quickly they now outnumber undergraduate enrollments, and these administrators serve their own interests and the universities, not those of the students. Any struggling student is seen to be a liability. One student said, quote, They never asked what they could do to help with the sexual assault and PTSD. Not a single question about how Yale can support you. They didn't take into account who I was and what I needed. Their only concern was that I leave. I don't even know what goes wrong in someone's minds to make them behave that way. If you ask me, they're more in need of mental health treatment than those students. And some involuntary withdrawals of those administrators might actually do a lot of good. So all of that makes Yale University this week's... Idiot Extraordinary! 
Well, that wraps up this He's Mad. He's madder than Mad Jack McMad, the winner of last year's Mr. Madman competition. Edition of the Bogosity Podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please go to donate.bogosity.tv for several ways to support and discord.bogosity.tv to join the discussion. Subscribe at Patreon or Subscribestar and you can listen early and ad-free. Thank you for listening. Until next time, here's a quote from Edward Snowden. Can we be said to be free if even the power to understand the facts of the world can be fenced off from us? The Bogosity Podcast is licensed under Creative Commons Attribution on Commercial No Derivatives 4.0 International License. Bogosity. We live in a world where light bulbs connect to the internet, and recent attacks on them prove that your online security is under threat like never before. Not only your websites, but the internet-enabled devices you buy. And the biggest problem is weak passwords. That's why you need LastPass. LastPass allows you to randomly generate strong, unique passwords on the web and on your internet-enabled devices, all protected by one master password. LastPass sets up in minutes and gives you secure automatic logins throughout the web, synchronizing across all your browsers, all your computers, and even your mobile devices, at home, at work, or on the road. It even securely stores sensitive form data, including credit card numbers, backup sensitive documents, software licenses, Wi-Fi logins, and more. And with LastPass Premium, you can get these benefits on other applications, manage passwords for your entire family, and also get priority customer support. Sign up at password.bogosity.tv for a free month of LastPass Premium. Log in securely everywhere using the last password you'll ever have to remember. Go to password.bogosity.tv and get LastPass now.